I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch says yes more to these nice guys. where I'm like, yeah, sequel. Make three or four of these. Yeah, never I stop making the weapon movies. treatment where the last ones are like not that good, but I still watch them every so often. They're still lethal weapon movies. I'm happy they exist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, this this we're we're not where we love to watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme and if we remember we compare and contrast. We're in our third week of the lazy dog days of summer, where we're covering uh, L.A.-based shaggy dog mystery movies, and we're uh, covering Shane Black's 2016 movie, The Nice Guys, which I think we have talked about on the show before, even though we didn't do it as part of our Shane Black Christmas month, because this is a rare Shane Black movie that does not take place at Christmas, but we were doing our best of the year uh, uh, lists when this came out. I think the Nice Guys was on both of our best of best of 2016 lists. Absolutely, was. And we have kind of danced around a lot of Shane Black's career. We haven't covered everything, but we yeah. have covered all all of the major touch points. Right? We covered. Yeah, we haven't done like Last Boy Scout or Monster we, Squad or like. We covered like his breakthrough script of Lethal Weapon, yep. which he. Uh, Joel Silver picked up when he was 22 right out of UCLA film mm-hmm. school. We covered... Did we cover any of the other 80s stuff? Well, we uh, we covered Long Kiss Goodnight, which is not 80s, but that was well, like his $3 million script. That yes. was like the... We covered Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which was his, his peak as a his peak as a creator is was uh yeah was was Long Kiss Goodnight in terms of um, cash flow and, yeah and then know, he went away for nine years basically because that movie didn't do well and there's a lot of other things we talked about he came back did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang which is what yeah. was his directorial debut and was also kind of getting Robert Downey Jr. back in the mix of things a movie that. Dint was, like, barely released at the time that has, like, revitalized his career. And then we did Iron Man 3, which was, like, his his cash windfall post Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Is, well, you know, Robert Downey Jr. specifically was like, please let Shane Black write one of these. And as someone who, uh, since we did that episode, went through all of the Marvel movies with my oldest kid, uh, I will tell you unequivocally, Iron Man 3 is if not the best Marvel movie in the top two. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it, it's it's so funny watching those back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back, some of them that I haven't seen uh, since they came out. And we've talked about this. You have a lower opinion of those movies in general than I do. But even ones that I liked when I first watched them, like Captain America Civil War or something like that, part of it is you re- – like, when I watched it again, I was like, oh, did I give this movie five stars? This is, like – Three and a half stars at best because you're watching like an episode of a TV show. Big things happen. It's moving a plot along. There's surprises. It's a roller coaster. You get caught up with it and then you watch it again. You're like, oh, I 
none of these plot twists matter anymore. There wasn't because it's now, you know, I'm eight years later into the story. You know, some of this stuff is kind of stupid. All the other things. And then you watch some of them like Winter Soldier or Iron Man 3, especially. And you're like, fuck, this is just a great movie. And it's a great movie compared to everything else. So, yeah, mm-hmm. we covered we covered Iron Man 3 as well, which I, you know, I know we said it at the time. It was probably the best Marvel movie or one of the best as someone who just went through them all again. You know, five years after we recorded that episode. Yes, absolutely. It's one of the best. Um and then after Iron Man 3, he did The Nice Guys, which is what we're going to talk about today. We'll also probably talk a little bit about The Nice Guys, uh, while it was well-received, it uh, it wasn't that big of a hit. It, it made its budget back, but it like made its budget back by like $15 million, so probably broke even with marketing and stuff like that. Um, and then Shane Black has kind of had a, a downfall from there as well. Uh, the Predator, which, Peter, you haven't seen, is terrible. Uh, you know, we can talk about it a little bit. But this is almost like a postscript, a mini postscript to our Shane Black career trajectory we did from Lethal Weapon to Long Kiss Goodnight to, to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and uh, Iron Man 3. The Nice Guys is what com- what came after Iron Man 3, basically. Yeah. And The Nice Guys, what's interesting... He wrote it before he wrote Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He had a co-writer, and he wrote it in, like, uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, I think is is about when. Um, And he tried to get it made first, and then Kiss Kiss Bang Bang just ended up charging ahead a little bit because of Joel Silver um, wanting to work with him again. Joel Silver is kind of his shepherd, his uh, mentor, his consigliere, like, the guy who, like, has guided him through a lot of the major steps of his career. Um, Joel Silver's there... Um, I just listened to an interview with both of them where they still seem to like each other quite yeah. a bit. Um, Joel Silver was even there. Shane Black kind of fell out of the Lethal Black, the Lethal Weapon series. Like, they apparently don't have ill will currently for each other about how that panned out with Lethal Weapon 2, which is a story for a different day. Um, well, a story on but, on a previous day, actually. Yeah. I think we yeah, talked I would about like it, to, I think. Uh, I'd like to cover Lethal Weapon 2 and get into the the whole story there because it's pretty interesting and certain pieces of that went into Last Boy Scout and yeah. certain pieces of Last Boy Scout went into Die Hard, just the yeah. title. Yeah. Very weird. Yeah. Um, a lot of weird stuff there. But the point here is that this movie was originally supposed to be like his return and uh, they made some tweaks over the years. For a little while, they were pitching it as a TV show. Yep. Um, and then um, Iron Man... After Iron Man happened, a bunch of studios were like, we want to be in the Shane Black business again. And Joel Silver was like, I got just the movie. A modest, uh, sort of dark comedy, action comedy with, you know, shooting and violence, but also jokes every minute with a um, hotter than hot lead, Ryan Gosling, an established, like, uh, you know, I guess like lead turning into transitioning into character, character actor. Character actor, yeah. Like like Russell Crowe transitioning from like yeah. hot hot lead actor guy to like you know like uh, hey actually he kind of works better in this like heavy set you know bearded yeah. um, making very all these like a million small little choices style actor. Yeah. It did. It didn't. It didn't blow up the way that it, it should have, considering the dearth of studio comedies we have, right? Yeah, extremely well reviewed. It got like I think ninety two percent on Rotten Tomatoes on a lot of best of the year lists. Again, made its money back basically, but yeah, considering the star power, considering 
you know, post Iron Man 3 and everything else, you know, released at a good time around like um around Christmas or I believe it was a was kind of a November December like rower type thing that should have been and it really just really didn't take off um in any way that that I think is even you know could be called like a modest hit and we'll keep giving this guy 50 you know 40 million dollar budgets to do his stuff which is which is disappointing it, you know it is it's a ton of fun it is a movie that you're right like you can see why they pitched this as a as a TV show at one point because you could keep doing cases with these two characters and their precocious kid and everything else. Part of it is making sure you still have Shane Black writing it, but you could you could get a lot of mileage out of this. And I, I that is probably the best point to start and kind of where we left off because we talked about this when we did the Shane Black Christmas. Like there are, there are certain things that are very touch points of a Shane Black script. And I think you can make the case that The Nice Guys is the Shane Blackiest of Shane Black movies by far. This is him doing all those things that he does in his screenplays and he's just doing it constantly every minute. He has he he is working at a pace of of uh Shane Blackifying the script that is is different than I think his like you know, there's a little bit of that in Lethal Weapon. There's a lot of it in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. This is that on steroids. This is him wanting to subvert tropes, like, not just every scene, but every minute of every every scene. And, and you know, as a quick recap from those, those earlier conversations, part, part of the reason that Shane Black became, for a while, the hottest screenwriter in Hollywood, and definitely the the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood, was because he really understood Hollywood tropes. And he knew how to subvert them in an interesting way that, you know, there's a lot of the lethal weapon piece. There's a lot of, um, you know, a lot the movies that he was making that knew how to go. Hey, all these action movies, these kind of big, dumb 80s action movies g- keep going to the same place over and over. So I'm going to go right up to that point where o- the audience has a certain set of expectations. And then I'm going to twist. So, yeah, the main character can't get. Hurt, I'm going to hurt my main characters constantly in very debilitating, sometimes permanent ways. Like, that was the lethal weapon, too. You can't kill the lead of this movie. I really want to kill the lead of this of this movie. I want this. I, I want the the annoying kid character. That's a common trope. I want to actually make him them interesting, uh, integral to the plot, funny. Uh, I don't I, I don't want to do, like. There's all these different things, and we talked about that a lot in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, especially that he knew how to do, and he also knew how to do it in a way that got producers' attention. There, there was uh, something called Shane Blackisms, if you remember. Peter used to write into scripts that were there to kind of comment not on the movie but on the people reading the script, like you know, mentioning that, like describing a house as the type of house that would belong to a big shot Hollywood producer like the person reading the script right now in a way that like made people understand that he he had a sense of humor about the whole escapade and and that came through in a script lethal weapon is a funny movie like long kiss goodnight is a funny clever movie like even the last boy scout which is i think probably one of his worst movies although it can be sometimes really hard to gauge with when you're the screenwriter and then another director goes and takes it, even though tony scott's a very good director he i mean his style feels a lot different he's he is a lot more sincere i think in his action than shane black 
is, um, where Richard Donner has a lot more light comedy background. So I think the tonally Richard Donner uh, fits a little bit better. But yeah, he, you know, that's kind of was his his bread and butter. And when we come to Nice Guys, you're right, Peter. This is him having sort of almost complete control. He's not fighting for anything. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, he's fighting to uh, small budget, sort of washed up stars and just trying to get everything made. Now he's doing Nice Guys on the on the back of one of the more successful Marvel movies to that point from a financial standpoint. He can do whatever he wants with his characters, with his script, with his budget to some effect. And so we get this like Shane Black movie on steroids, even compared to some stuff, something like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or Iron Man 3. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you could argue between this one and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang as being the most, you know, indicative of his style, the most untethered. Um, this is the one, though, that I feel feels like such a confident work. Yeah. And it, but it also, like, it reflects a changing attitude, right? Like, um, his early scripts have a, very, I think, very fun sort of balance between, like, commerce, but also I want to put my stamp on this, I want to be known as a screenwriter, and Joel Silver coming in and being like, you got to rewrite the scene, it's weak, or rewrite the yeah. scene, it's too fatty. Like, it has that stamp of, like, lean, mean, but, like, you got to make sure that you make your, 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 like, your name in Hollywood, right? Um, And then you get to Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, and it's almost like an embittered script that sounds like a guy who kind of got pushed out. Um, You know, uh, people said the Emperor has no clothes to him for a few years, and then he was like, well, I've got a lot of fucking money, let's go party for a few years. He said he's like, me and my friends are just going out and basically doing swinger stuff all the time like we're (laughs) doing just fine and then all of a sudden four or five years have passed and everyone's like oh that guy isn't he washed up yeah and so the movie reflects that sort of attitude uh iron man 3 sort of has a fun they let me do one of these kind of quality like they let me me do do most of what i wanted to do we talked about the big twist that he wasn't allowed to do but yeah yeah and he and you know like that movie is 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 you know really good it's a a really good script like what we ended up is a really good script uh and uh you know it's i think it's robert downey jr's best moments as iron man in the entire series um but then you get here and it feels like the director it like it's been rewritten or it's been directed a little bit more calmly and a little bit more confidently um than kiss kiss bang bang it feels like it's a movie about um, a guy feeling like I'm home again. And it's sad that it wasn't, uh, you know, a modest hit at a minimum, right? Like, yeah. it's sad that it didn't end up in that position because it is such an easy sell. Like, who doesn't want to watch? It's not, okay, it's an action movie, but it's not a grisly, grotesque action movie that a lot of people, like, wouldn't necessarily want to watch. It's not mean, really. Yeah. Um, It's funny, but it's not uh too cringy or modernist or ironic or whatever it's genuinely like joke set up joke set up and then it rewards you for paying attention it's a very classical sort of comedy script um you could have this script could have been from you know the 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 90s or the 2000s or the 80s you know yeah uh, give or take a few a few more absurd moments and what you end up with is a movie that i think kind of baffles the the cult fans of this because you're like 
I watch this and it's just I soak in it. It's a movie that like feels so watchable, even though it's like two hours. It feels so watchable. Yeah. This this is a movie that like I feel like I'll definitely come back and, and return to in like the next year, just because it's like fun to sit in in the stew. Yeah. Um, not to mention, like we're in this weird era where like Marvel directors, the like people keep saying like oh they'll they'll make one for the studio and one for themselves and then these directors who you used to root for like the russo brothers yeah they get in and then they come out different and weird yeah (laughs) like they make these movies like the gray man where you're like who is this for yeah who is is this for nobody yeah and and they're working on all these like big projects that have zero spirit and zero soul and aren't funny and you're like you guys. Well, they get released, and you don't even know. Arrested yeah. Development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's your? Where'd you go? Yeah, the Russo brothers are a great example of that. Who like Winter Soldier was like their Iron Man three. You're like hell yeah. These guys from this TV show I like are getting to make a movie. And they made a really fucking good like Captain America seventies like spy thing out of it. And then like now you're like they've had how many movies released on Netflix? I've never heard of with a budget of two hundred million dollars. Like uh. all right. That's uh, that's bizarre. And I, I actually think you could make the case a little bit. Shane Black hasn't done anything. I know he has something in the works since 2018. So after this wasn't like a huge runaway success, although there was talks of a sequel, there was talks of a TV show version called The Nice Girls that got like a pilot pickup that didn't go anywhere. You know, Shane Black goes and kind of returns to uh, something that is a little bit more comfortable for him. So, you know, he de- went, goes and does The uh, the Predator uh, from 2018. Shane Black was in the original Predator as a, as a cast member and did a bunch of uncredited rewrites on that script as well. So I remember, you know, being very excited about it because it's like, you know, he's coming back and he's, He's doing, I think we, I think the Predator had not come out when we had recorded those episodes and we talked about like, this is going to be great because uh, he reunited with uh, his monster squad buddy on the script. Fred Decker. Fred yeah. Decker. And like, he's going back to this, uh, this, this uh, franchise that he had had some, uh, some responsibility for at its inception or some, some part of it, its success could be attributed to him. And it felt like a no brainer. And the reviews were so bad that I skipped it forever, and then I watched it the last Spooktober, and it was a bizarre experience because uh, – and this is something I want to talk about in relation to the nice guys in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It felt like 1987's Fred Decker and Shane Black like wrote the script. The amount of like misogyny, uh, weirdo homophobia, racist jokes – like. It felt like edgy versions of, you know, people that had written it 30 years ago, but also like beyond all of that stuff that was like, Jesus Christ, like, what is this movie? None of the lines were clever. None of the jokes, none of those twists were were all that clever. And and one thing we talked about, even in our Shane Black month that applies to his, his best movies, he walks a fine line between clever and stupid. And he seems to get on the clever side way more often than he does on the that's kind of a stupid line or stupid twist or that's too clever by half and it makes your eyes roll. And I think Nice Guy is an example of him getting like everything right. It's all on the right side of that dividing line. And then his next movie, The Predator, everything's on the wrong side of that dividing line to the point that it feels like not a Shane Black movie, but someone trying to copy the writing of Shane Black 
and failing miserably at being a good copycat. It's like an AI generated shit. Sh- like if you wrote like, hey, write the Predator script in the style of Shane Black. I, I think you'd get the Predator. The misogyny and stuff like that's important too. Because one of the things we talked about with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I think was our biggest demerit on that film, is its attitude on wi- women sucks. Like it's a terrible attitude on women. Uh, even though Michelle Monaghan is a great character in that movie, everything around it is really based on like the some some of the worst aspects of the 2005 like centrist liberal guy <laughs> attitude towards towards women. And I think the nice guy somewhat gets over most of that. Um, there's a there's a there's a kind of a little bit of like a things that remind you that Shane Black is like 62 years old and not a young hotshot anymore. Like he's not in our generation. Like the, uh, the, there's a scene where people are protesting pollution and you, you have everyone kind of making fun of them and you get a sense that like Shane Black thinks some protests are stupid about like, uh, you know, kids protesting the environment and stuff like that. Like it feels a little bit like, uh, there's not like a joke about how dumb Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe are in that scene where they're making fun of the kids for protesting. The joke is that these kids are dumb and they're and the and their commentary on like why are you wearing a gas mask that's stupid. Why can't you breathe? Like is it's it's coming from how it's coming from Shane Black and there is those reminders of like oh yeah Shane Black is is a is a a baby boomer. He he might have he might be like a Bill Maher liberal in that range and like look at these dumb kids trying to do good in the world attitude type stuff even though it comes around it's, to like It's about t- yeah, it's about s- smog affecting the birds is the reason he thinks it's it's funny, right? Cuz it's yeah. not about it's not about smog affecting like people's health outcomes it's this they're concerned about the birds and then yeah later ryan gosling's like i don't know man maybe the smog is fucking up the birds <laughs> I, know. I know like it's like it's like I, I it's a little bit of that which felt like and again hit the the even even a movie that's so um so about like porn i think mostly um straddles the line <laughs> pun not intended to be like not misogynist and why i'm noting that specifically is that was kind of our complaint on kiss kiss bang bang a movie that's still pretty seedy and set in the 70s porn world a lot i think gets over most of that from a shane black perspective the attitude on women has improved um and it was a bummer to see (laughs) see the predator two years later it's like oh all your attitudes on everyone has uh, I mean, I guess blame it all on Fred Decker. I don't yeah. know, but some something's really, really, really off here. I, I yeah, I guess you know, unf- it doesn't feel good, but blaming it on the guy who uh, whose career genuinely just never took off really is probably easier. Um, I mean, he still directed it and gave it a pro- like. It's probably not all Fred Decker. It's just it that is such a when if you ever end up seeing it, Peter, I think. It's almost just fascinating as a Shane Black fan to be like, what is this? Why? Yeah. How did this How did this get written in 2018? Yeah. But, okay, so. But let's get back. Nice, guy, nice guys. How does this fit in this month, right? Uh, I think you were the one that made the hardest pitch on this. Um, and I never quite feel good when I'm picking all four movies in the month, so this worked out pretty well for me. Well, um, we were, I mean, full transparency, not that we need it on the show. We were going to do, the the other one we were going to do is um, The Long Goodbye, which is a great movie, a movie I love. And it felt like that movie 
fit better if we ever do a 50s, 60s, 70s version of this as opposed to uh, doing – because, you know, we have a movie in 1998. We have a movie in 2014, a movie in 2018. Like The Long Goodbye, while it meets some of the requirements, I also think my big pitch of why we should save The Long Goodbye was that Ryan Gosling specifically in this movie – is more akin to like Elliot Gould is actually kind of like cool and good at his job and he is he's more of the version like it obviously has an Altman 70s flavor but he's more the version of um that we were talking about of like yes he gets knocked around but he's that he's cool and he's the smartest guy in the rule and he comes up on top and our point about Big Lebowski was that 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 wasn't the case he was an idiot who doesn't come out on top in most cases, who has trouble piecing it together. Doc sits somewhere in the middle where the haze exists, but he's definitely not the coolest, smartest guy in the room. He gets his ass kicked. He gets uh, things pulled over on him. He forgets what he's doing part of the time. And while Russell Crowe in this movie is somewhat competent, I do think Ryan Gosling is on that spectrum of, like... I mean, he they he jokes throughout the movie that he is um, the... Everyone keeps joking he's the worst P.I. and the worst detective they've ever met. And the movie spends time in one of my favorite jokes where he finally does the long goodbye big sleep piecing everything together that this place is not the airport. It's actually these apartments. And they spend so much time in the movie, like, you know, three or four minutes of him saying, so this means this. And if you do this, we got to look it up for here. And then they find out where those apartments are. And (laughs) they drive to those apartments. And he's like, I figured it out. It's an English flat. It's not about this. And they're like, those burned down two years ago. And he's like, okay, to the airport. (laughs) (laughs) It's so great. Like he never, he doesn't get anything. Right. And so I do think on, on that spectrum, he, I, you know, he fits better in this mold of like, not cool, competent guys who get the shit kicked out of them um, or like powerful force to stop them. But he feels more in the spectrum of the Lebowskis and the docks. Yeah. And okay, so my my immediate like apprehension was not so much that I don't love this movie because I do love this movie or that I thought it wasn't a good fit in terms of genre or whatever. My immediate uh, uh, reaction was Shane Black doesn't write lazy dog kind of yeah. L.A. mystery movies. Shane Black writes movies about that are like snappy and go, go, yeah. go, go, go. But you watch this movie and it does have a lot of Ryan Gosling just trying to slow shit down. Ryan Gosling yeah. <laughs> being like, uh, who plays a character named Holland Marsh, Marsh um, who is just like, you know, let's take our pay, go home, drink in the house for a couple of days, yeah. and then we'll come back to her, maybe get some more money out of her, then maybe yeah. I'll go ask a few more people. Like, yeah. he is, he is, he's not Doc Sportello. He's not Lebowski either, because Lebowski yeah. is like, he doesn't really lie to people, right? He doesn't really have, have much of a... Yeah. He doesn't really have much, I mean, he lies when he says he's going to pay the rent or whatever, but like, he doesn't really have much of um, uh, a malice in him uh big the 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 dude is mostly like uh hey uh i just really want to be left alone yeah that's that's all i'm asking for and you know i guess if you pay me a bunch of money i will actually throw my my best attempt at solving this yeah it's not gonna be good though yeah um but the, the holland march is a different kind of thing he's a con man who occasionally stumble fucks his way through enough cases that he make that people don't you know fucking 
Well, because he's mostly like, I mean, we see his caseload before in, in a very funny early scene. He's interviewing this older lady about her husband who went missing. And he looks up at when she says the name and there's his ashes above the fireplace. But you're right. He's not trying to con this person necessarily, but he is like, uh, and when was the last time that you saw him? And she's like, at the funeral, at his funeral. <laughs> so he's like, okay. Well, and then he's like, and then he's like, okay, well, this will take a while to solve. He like makes notes that he's going to be working with her for quite a while because recognizing that he's, he's you know, he's never going to quite solve the case, but he's fine taking this. Uh, this person's money, but yeah, he you're, he he does kind of that hate the he gives up his clients immediately. Like he's just not all that committed to being a good PI. He just wants the money of being a PI. Yeah, and and and, and to kind of take a step back, right? Like something I wanted to reflect on this month that I I don't know if I've done a great job on, but like these movies that are subverting noir tropes, these comedies, these you know. Uh, comedy mysteries that are sort of subverting P.I. tropes with these detectives that are, if not inept, like, a little silly. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is that, like, they kind of end up in the same situation that very competent detectives do in the the real noir movies, right? Like, yeah. how many Bogart movies end with him being like, I saved the girl, but, like, there's still a fucked up organization out there. Or, yeah, I didn't save the girl, but at least I, you know, got out with my skin. And, like, uh, and I think of even, like, neo-noirs. Like, I think of Chinatown. It has a real fucking bummer ending. I yeah. think of L.A. Confidential, where they eradicate a bunch of the dirty cops, but, like, they didn't fix the system. There's just going to be another set of dirty cops coming down the line at some point, right? Well, th- this one, too. Like, it doesn't have and a that's, title. That's why this fits. This, yeah. is, this is not a movie about saving the world. This is a movie about them being like, well, we did the right thing, and the world pissed in our mouth. Yeah, this is a movie about them almost finding friends. They got the girl killed. Th- them becoming friends. They got the girl killed, and... The the joke, which it doesn't have to use like the other guy's title cards for you to get, is that um, uh, Detroit does fall. All these bad interests end up like, you know, they don't have a title card in 1982. Detroit went bankrupt or anything. Um, do you remember the other guy's movie I kind of generally like, but it ends with like every chart about the Wall Street people that they're supposed to bring down in that movie? But like, yeah, this, this movie understands you're smart enough to recognize that the joke about, you know, these bad capitalist interests serving Detroit uh, was actually was actually bad for Detroit long term. Yeah. But yeah, they do, they functionally don't save Detroit, which is the joke at the end. Uh, and they get the girl killed. The only positive thing is they survive and they are friends and going to start a detective agent. Yeah, and it's a perfect set. Like I was saying, it's a perfect setup for a sequel that would never happen. Um, this is also one of those like flash in the pan movies where like everybody wanted Ryan Gosling. And apparently like... Ryan Gosling was harder to get a hold of. Apparently, like, while Ryan, while Joel Silver was meeting with Ryan Gosling, uh, Shane Black was flying to Australia to meet with Russell Crowe, and Ryan Gosling's like, oh, this is actually happening. This isn't some script that I'm going to yeah. have to sit on for six months. You're you're actually going, I'd love to work with Russell Crowe. And that's how the movie got made. It yeah. was like Ryan Gosling being like, oh, this is like a real thing. Like you both are actually like trying. When are you flying to Australia to meet with Russell Crowe? Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, he, he said, Shane Black said that it uh, 
was a movie that took 13 years to put together that fell into place in three days. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's amazing also because this is the sort of movie where, like, all right, generally, I, I, generally speaking, I'm actually not very positive on Russell Crowe as an actor. I don't really like Russell Crowe as an actor. I don't really like Gladiator. I There's a few Gladiator. movies he made early in his career that I'm like, yeah, like, he's good in it, but the movie's not great. I'm not a he's big the eighth, eighth best part of... Um... I like confidential. Yeah, yeah. I would say, yeah. I, I would say I, 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 I'm the same. I'm not a huge Russell Crowe fan. And I also think, like, why this movie works as a little bit of rehabilitation for me as well is, like, he was in, like, the movies that he got all his acclaim for and became this huge movie star. I don't know if we ever talked about it on the show. I know it's still a controversial opinion. I think Gladiator is a bad movie. I don't really like it. And I think Beautiful Mind is less controversial. I think A Beautiful Mind is a terrible movie. And so, like, those were his two back-to-back Oscars. And so I was not on the Russell Crowe train at all. Yeah, I, I, I just not not a big Russell Crowe guy. I don't think he's a terrible actor, but I absolutely love... I want, I want to watch The Pope's Exorcist. I absolutely, like, I absolutely love him in this, this character actor mode. I love him exploring being more of a comedic actor. Not that he'd never done anything funny before, but... Um, this is this is a career shift for him, and on the same page, Ryan Gosling is someone who, TV actor, like he's in Goosebumps episodes and stuff, like TV. He actor, played young Hercules. Yeah, which... he, he did. He's done a bit of everything, yeah. but people think of him largely as like the cool, got it together guy. Whether that's in Drive or it's in, um, not what's the the Steve Carell weird? Oh, da- eat eat. Is it? It's not called Eat, Pray, Love, is it? No, it's something stupid, like crazy that, love? Though, right? Stupid, crazy love, something. Cra- stupid, cra- crazy, stupid love. Yeah, yeah. That that comedy that I'm sure people are yelling at their their car radio about. Like, like even that's though... a bad movie. Why did I watch it and know the title? Is that <laughs> some people love that movie? Um, but the point is, like, even in movies like that, or or The Notebook, or in Drive, like in his career, he generally plays the put together cool guy in place behind the pines he's even a cool guy he dies cool like um he's generally his career has been playing this guy that's like cool competent together and then yeah when he's at his best it's like stuff like this or like the insider which is like he doesn't have shit together in the insider everyone keeps fucking him over the the point here is that like he expanding his his comedic palette as well to being able to like i'm gonna play someone that actually like i'm gonna subvert my own looks a little bit um he's not like he doesn't put on a fake nose or whatever like he still looks hot it's part of the character is that he's he's handsome and charming right yeah and that sometimes these grandmothers hire him because like he's like he's like a handsome young guy yeah but he him subverting that and looking like a nincompoop and screaming high pitched whenever he gets hurt or scared. <laughs> yeah. Like all of that and obviously being bumbling essentially top to bottom until he does one cool thing in the final the, the finale. Yeah. <laughs> all of that together <laughs> yeah. all of that together leaves it being like, this is a brave performance for him. He was like, I'm going to subvert my like cool calm image and play something goofy and now we've got barbie in theaters and barbie is his ken performance is like one of the marketing stumps that they're hitting is like is like ryan gosling so funny in this ryan gosling is so silly in this like isn't it so great that he gets to make fun of himself a little bit yeah a hundred percent i was actually 
even though this this uh, we're recording this the week that Barbie comes out, and it won't come out till like a month after Barbie has come out. I was I was going to say this feels like uh, Barbie Origins in like in like the way they're using them because this didn't this didn't lead to him doing a bunch of like bumbling comedies like after this he does stuff like la la land and blade runner 2049 and first man and like stuff that he's very good in but you're right he is a serious man he was not in a serious man but he's a serious man showing emotions and everything else and uh the 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 fact that it took like you know fucking barbie to be like oh yeah remember that guy who gave one of the funniest performances i think of of 20 the 2010s should we put him in a comedy again like it it's 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 shocking how little comedies he's been in when you see something like this um or presumably the reviews from uh barbie have said that he's very funny in that which is not surprising because playing a a nincompoop is the perfect word because yeah. it's not that he's just not smart it's that he doesn't learn like a child like the thing about like a baby is like when kids are older and they retain their memories and they they understand cause and effect a little bit more and they do something that they get hurt on they They touch a hot stove yeah they stop doing it the thing about babies though is they don't put those two and two things together so a baby can do something like like put something in their mouth and choke on it and it's scary and they get it out and they're crying and they're screaming and they will just look down and grab the next thing on the floor if it's in front of them and try to do that again because they're not putting the fact that they put stuff in their mouth as the reason for that scary moment or the painful moment that just happened. That's Ryan Gosling in this movie, like from the get-go when Russell Crowe like busts in and just starts kicking the shit out of them and he keeps trying to, like, in the worst way, grab a gun or do some cool P.I. shit. And he keeps fucking up and Russell Crowe hurts him more. And he, had, Russell, like, he's like, he then will try to do it again 30 seconds later. <laughs> like, and Russell Crowe finally, like, steps on him and is like, are you done? Yep. No, this time I am done. I'm done this time. <laughs> and it's, it's like he doesn't, like, he is a baby. He is a, he's yeah. a human baby in this movie and he's so funny at it. He's so funny. And, and like, to kind of, like, take a little step back, I can only think of one other movie, really, where he downplays his, like, cool persona. I'm sure there's other roles, right? But, like, Only God Forgives, he plays this, like, pathetic psychopath. Um, oh, yeah. This creep. Um, and he has that high-pitched scream when he's, like, screaming at, at his date uh, because yeah. she embarrassed him in front of her mom or whatever. That's less um, funny, though. And it's not funny at all. It's no. actually like it, but he's really good in it as this like um, pathetic mama's boy worm. I would love to see Ryan Gosling do more. Yeah, like Barbie style comedy. And I would also love to see him play a fucking creep again. I want to see him play like someone who's actually scary because he has that like stillness to him. And in Drive, they turn that into something sexy. But I imagine a lot of people that watch Drive, they were like, this is creepy more than hot like it's crossed a line for <laughs> yeah. them if maybe if blonde guys aren't your type the drive drive will will cross the line that direction right yeah maybe if maybe if dripped out blonde guys aren't your type you know drive was actually that that for you it was a creepy movie but like i would love uh i would love ryan gosling to play a psychopath i would love him to do get well, his american the, psycho or whatever kind of role i mean the thing is you don't know if that's 
we don't know if he played someone funny or a psychopath in The Gray Man, which he is apparently in. I've watched 15 minutes of it, and I did you watch 15 you, minutes of it? I watched 15 minutes of it, and then I was like, "What am I? What am I doing to me?" This isn't a. I, you thought it was a sequel to The Empty Man, and I like, was like, that, "That's the that's the progression. Like it goes he's, empty, uh, gray man, opaque man." <laughs> I was just happy to see just getting that he wasn't completely in. empty. You know? Yeah. Oh, good. He's got some shade. Like I hope it's dark gray as opposed to light gray like you know mm-hmm. it's i hope he's filling in nicely becoming a nice solid color yeah, yeah. um and then oh mr opaque man <laughs> mr personality over here then he's played by <laughs> billy crystal in the <laughs> mr saturday night himself peter well if billy if billy crystal were there i think the color progression would go a different color after gray yeah <laughs> oh, yeah, Google it. People. Does everyone remember what the jazz man is? Yeah, if you just, don't. Just Google it. We, if you if you don't, maybe actually, don't. Do, trigger war. Look up trigger warnings for Billy Crystal, the jazz man, and then Google it if you feel if the trigger warnings were enough for you to continue on. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, you don't even uh, Google Billy Crystal, Sammy Davis Jr. impression. Not great. <laughs> Guys. Yeah, you might be saying, you might be saying, oh man, but he was doing that in the eighties. Nope. Right after Hurricane Katrina, he start. He was still doing the jazz man. Um, can't say, oh, well, guys, it's comedy. Actually, that's what it was supposed to be originally too. Like you can't, you can't use that as a defense because that's what it was, quote unquote, supposed to be in the eighteen hundreds and nineteen hundreds too. So uh, you have not. It's not now uh, funny. Yeah, they're do- it's the same in service of the same thing, guys. Um, let's talk about one thing before we get into the plot. Um, so, full transparency, I gave this movie four and a half stars in Letterboxd. Stars don't really matter. But I bumped it up to the full five after seeing this because I'm like, if this isn't what I want out of movies, what, what am I even watching movies for? It's that kind of fun. Um, there's one part of this movie, though, if I was going to knock it down, that I feel very conflicted about. And I'm interested in your take. Uh, so one of Shane Black's like Hollywood trope, Hollywood action movie trope things that he loves to subvert. He does it in Iron Man three in a very funny way is the precocious kid who helps the adult protagonist. This is a weird one though. Um, the, 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 the kid in question in this movie is Holly March. Uh, Holland March had a wife who died. He looks after, he's kind of, you know, he's a shitty dad. His d- daughter calls him a bad person. Of course you're and a, a bad, bad detective. person. And a bad detective in, in the first. She's 13 years old. Um, and she she helps accompany them and is the kid that's always in the trunk during the action scene. They need to protect again. Shane Black understands how the, the precocious kid in action movie trope works. He loves using it. He usually does a really good job. I think uh, Angori Rice, who plays Holly March, who has since been in the Spider-Man movies and a few other things. I think she's in... Um, there's a really good movie that came out last year. It might be called Honor Society that she's the lead in that I that I loved. If that's not the name of it, I'm sorry. It was on Paramount+. Plus. It also has the one kid from Stranger Things. Um, I can look it up later. The weird thing about using it in this movie, which I think is part of uh, Shane Black's Edgelord streak, is like... Hey, we're using this kid who goes to all of these porn parties and watches porn. 
Um, it's a little, I don't know. Uh, like, I get that's supposed to be part of the joke. It's a little weird. <laughs> I really like what they do here. So there's three moments I can think of where there's sort of like a child that is a, that, like exposed or is showing some sort of exposure to the to the broader world. It opens with um, a kid stealing a porno mag from his dad. Yeah. And then the woman in the magazine, uh, Misty Mountains, dies in his front yard. In, in like the really same great, pose. Yeah. In the same pose. And while she's sort of like dying from a concussion, she says, uh, how do you like my car, big boy? And then he's like, oh, this is actually sad and puts yeah. his shirt over her to cover her up. Yeah. That's that's one part of the movie. Another part is, yeah, Holly is at the porno party. And after Hol- Hol- Holland tries to send her home multiple times, she just yeah. comes back because it's not it's not the child that he's raised right yeah the child that he's raised does not get in the cab and go home right yeah. um and uh he's like and then um russell crowe's character jackson is like you should really your dad told you to go home you should leave and then he just leaves her in the front yeah. um he doesn't actually es- escort her out and then i think oh a little bit earlier um there's a kid riding by who's like the precocious kid there's this character is in lethal yeah. weapon basically too yeah. um riding by is like oh i saw the you know the fire and i was in the house and gives them a bunch of really good intel and then he's like i've got a really big dick do you want to see my dick and they're like no yeah no i don't want to and he's like it's only 20 bucks and he's like i already gave you 20 dollars wait what am i saying like there's a joke <laughs> there's a joke where our kid tries to prostitute himself to holland and, and jackson just just for views yeah and I think that that all plays into this movie is, is it has a commentary that I think is making fun of boomers, which is like this, that we, they pretend like, um, you know, every generation has thought this world is going to hell. This next generation, they're going to, you know, they're going down the tubes too. The difference is like, he's talking about in this movie, like if Holly is 13 and this movie takes place in 77. Yeah. Like he's talking about someone now uh whatever who is 53 Four. yeah who's 53 we're not talking about a kid anymore we're talking yeah. about gen x boomer kind of crossover generation yeah. right and i think like and there's a moment where holland says you know i you know i just you know this, this generation's screwed the whole world's going to hell and i and i like that he has these little winks that he doesn't step on the button too hard where he's like Oh, well, you can't beat Detroit. Detroit's always going to be here. And, like, yeah. uh, this generation's going to hell. And he's saying this in 1977, right? Yeah. Like, his generation hasn't even sold everyone out yet fully. Um, and I, I, I find those moments a little uncomfortable, but I feel like they're acknowledging a broader truth, which is, like, no generation grew up innocent. And the kids in the 70s grew up surrounded by filth and violence and a crazy world. And um, to pretend like... You know, they're going through something unique. Yeah. Uh, is, is is always a little bit of folly, right? Yeah, I think that's a good I think that's a good call out to it. And I I, I, li- I really like where her character goes and then she has so many great moments in the in the finale and everything else. It is it does feel very much like I, I think you're right on the commentary. It also feels like, again, in the Shane Blackiest movie, he's really trying to push on the button of like putting uh, children in adult situations in like rated R movies, which again he didn't start that trend. 
he just has always clearly been very, very into the idea of doing it in a way that he finds, uh, finds interesting. And, um, yeah, it's, I, I like it. It does. It, there's a, there's a specific scene where like, yeah, she's like watching a porn and Russell Crowe comes in and goes, what? Like and and the porn actress is describing getting anal to her. <laughs> that like is like it does feel like Shane Black going like I'm going to push this as far as I possibly possibly can. That feels a little bit like I don't. I'm I'm not trying to be a, a, a moral scold or anything like that, but it does feel a little bit like okay. Like, yeah, at some point you wonder, like, the whole point is that he's supposed to be a fuck up dad, not a let's call child protective services. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the other that's, thing. You're right the- there. They're trying to thread that needle where like, uh, yeah, he drinks all the time, but he makes his daughter drive him when he's but his daughter's 13, not 16. And then yeah. he sends his daughter home in a cab and also like tries to get his daughter to like go hang out at, at their friend's house when, you know, things are getting dangerous. Yeah. But then he'll still end up, like, not putting that much effort into making sure she's safe. They're kind of threading a needle there. Also, he's a drunk, but he's not, like, a screaming violent no. drunk. He will take her abuse and her, you know, her her, her just trying to go to reaction out of him more yeah. than abuse. And he'll take it and just be like, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess I do suck. Which is, like, kind of what dads are supposed to do. Dads aren't supposed to rage and scream when yeah. a 13-year-old says something they don't like. Yeah, I guess that that is... That is my point, though. It's less about, like, I think this is offensive or shouldn't be done on screen. It's about at what point do you start turning on Ryan Gosling as being the protector of the child? Because um, they they push it very far with, like, how how li- how both in danger this kid is and how little oversight Ryan Gosling has. Because you... You know, the thing about, like, uh, Robert Downey Jr. and the kid in Iron Man or some of these other movies, like, it doesn't matter because, like... Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. is, you know, being a little bit of a jerk to this kid. But Robert Downey Jr. is not this kid's father. Like, you're not supposed to go like, hey, you need to be nicer to your kid or you need to be more emotionally available or you need to not put him in dangerous situations. Like, no one is saying, Ryan, you know, Robert Downey Jr. or Iron Man should be the boy's father. And so, like, making it actually like Ryan Gosling's kid where he is a fuck up, puts her in intensely inappropriate situations for a 13 year old like you have to come around to go i'm so happy they're a family together at the end and i think he gets very close to going over over that sentiment in this movie you're 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 absolutely right and i'm sure for a lot of people they watch this and they were like get that guy away from her (laughs) yeah yeah i mean there there is a little bit of that I personally watched it and watched it in two contexts. One is that dads in the 70s were almost all uniformly terrible. Oh, yeah. Um, what, are you going to get him to a better dad family? I, no good dads I, in the 70s. Yeah, I like like my like my grandparents, I'm, I'm sure, like, you know, uh, did their best, which was not very good. Um, <laughs> but, like, uh, g- yeah, parents in the 60s and 70s were not very good, but we're balancing that against, like, we know that Ryan Gosling is, like, a widower and kind of a fuck-up, and we're balancing that against, like, he doesn't yell and scream at her, he actually listens to her and takes her seriously and is trying to develop her as a person, yeah. and there's this whole awesome running gag about him trying to improve her language, they'll she'll be like, Dad, there's horse, horse and stuff here, and he's like, Honey, we talked about this, and you think that he's going to correct her for being using foul language or whatever. Yeah, and she's and he's like, just say there are whores here. Yeah. You don't have to add, don't add, don't, don't, add, 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 add stuff. stuff. Yeah, superfluous. 
<laughs> like I, I, I like. There's moments in here where you. Like, I mean, that's you know, a boomer. Like, that's a boomer dad. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 not he's not like use proper her. grammar when you're smoking your cigarettes, please. <laughs> he's also not trying to do what like a lot of our parents tried to do, which was like, uh, all right, well now you're all super Christian. You're all Mormon now. You're all <laughs> hardcore evangelical Christian. Instead, he's just like. Yeah, I guess the world influenced you to be this way, but, like, I'm gonna try and steer the skid a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I, like I said, it, it is so funny because it is, as we talk about this, like, being Shane Black just going, pushing the, all of his uh, inclinations, this is one that's, that is sort of funny to me because not only do they, does he push it very hard of, like, the precocious kid and how involved she is and what she's exposed to they make it the daughter of the protagonist so like there's no separation of like uh hey this kid should go back to their parents and like oh no the 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 parent is the person i'm also rooting for uh but yeah uh well it also part of it also just works because like you see what a what a real shitty 70s parent looks like in kim basinger to uh to margaret qualley so yeah, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a contrast too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you want to know um, what real shitty seventies dads are like, I mean, watch mo. <laughs> We've been getting watch your home movies, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> We've been getting. I mean, talk to your parents. I don't know. Yeah. We've been getting um, uh, movies and books about how dads in the seventies were distant alcoholics, like pretty much since the eighties. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, if you want to, you know, but don't take my word for it. Uh, take my word for it on the other side of this uh, music break where we talk more about the film, The Nice Guys. The Nice Guys. This will be another uh, potentially long plot. I feel like we should go through it like we have the other ones. I'm not. I'm not going to do every red herring or twist. Let's talk a little more about these characters. And uh, this yeah. is one where the plot matters the most. I, I feel confident, even having not seen Under the Silver Lake. You tell me if I'm wrong. Of, yeah, that's true. That's true. I think Under the Silver Lake, like you, kind of have to like pay attention at the beginning and the end and. You're prob- most of the middle is just like a crazy journey this I think like the final set of the final moments won't land unless you're paying attention to what some of the conspiracy is and that's the other thing that separates this from every other movie this month it's pretty easy to follow conspiracy they explain it to you in a fairly straightforward way um, there's a few weird offshoots and some characters that end up not mattering very much like um, Tally um the yep. like uh the like justice department uh lady um who is like kind of just a stooge you think that like the money is going to matter and like all of that but it ends up just being fake money like there's there's stuff in here that 
Yeah, there's that, some good there's some good red herrings, but also the thing of like, oh, the thing we knew an hour ago actually matters. Uh, actually matters the most. Um, it's sort of an inverse version of Inherent Vice, where, like, so little of it matters, but, like, with this, like, kinda everything comes back. There's a few good red herrings, but kinda everything comes back. Yeah, I think one thing that does make it feel a little bit different is that what what's, you know, the movie is all about finding, uh, finding uh, Amelia Kuchner, who's played by Margaret Qualley, um, she dies with 40 minutes left in the movie. Like they, they, they don't, it's sudden they don't protect her. And that leads to like, okay, what do we do now? Instead, they become almost like advocates on her behalf to fulfill what she was trying to do as opposed to solve the mystery, which I think is, it's not necessarily has a relation to anything else that we've happened to the month, but, like, when they find Bunny and Big Lebowski, the movie's, like, basically over. There's, like, a five-minute ending, but, you know, there's where where Donnie dies, but the mystery's done. He doesn't keep going and pursuing it. This one, obviously, they they find her, they keep her safe. There's a tragic, accidental, ironic scene, uh, and then they kind of keep going forward with the Let's start with uh, the key characters. Um, yeah. Holland March, we've been talking about a little bit. Widower still lives in the big house that he lived in with his wife. Um, <clears throat> one of his weird character quirks is that he's smell blind. So before you spend too much time making fun of Holland Marsh, just remember he has a disability. Um, well, the other thing is he is uh, both prone to injury, but does not. There's a joke at the end of the movie that's so funny where he decides he's he must be invincible because it's the only explanation for how he keeps surviving things, which is a very funny screenwriter in joke. Um, but, you know, one of the we talked about in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, one of the f- most surprising moments in that movie. And again, Sheen Black knows how to subvert your expectations. Nothing permanent is going to happen to our protagonist is when his fucking finger gets cut off and he never is able to get a, or, you know, shut off by the door in a random moment. And he's never able to get it back on because eventually it keeps falling off of places, gets eaten by a dog. You know, it's a it's a funny moment that you don't expect. This movie takes that idea and with Ryan Gosling specifically uh, puts it up to 11 because in the opening scene where he's showing how he's trying to be a detective, he tries to break a window with his arm to get in to do some investigating. I think about this scene all the time, dude. It's so, it's so good. It's like the first five <laughs> minutes of the movie. Like, we have the intro of Russell Crowe, who we'll get to in a second, and the intro of him breaks the window with his arm. And he doesn't just cut his arm. He, like, gets the vein. I forget what vein it is, but it's the vein that you would cut, like, if you wanted to open your veins intentionally and he's like oh my god that is so much so much blood <laughs> and he he uh, ends up in the emergency room with an ambulance rushing just because he was trying to break into an old old warehouse but that is like that will keep happening we mentioned russell crow kicks the shit out of him breaks his arm he's in a cast basically for the majority of the movie and that kind of can, rolls falls down a hill loses his gun like that kind of idea of i'm actually going to really inconsistently injure my protagonist and then make the fact that he's injured have an effect on the plot is shane black really saying like 
yeah, he does survive at the end. He is kind of like invincible, but he's not bulletproof. Like yeah, I'm going to rough yeah. up my my heroes. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Like um his like inability to stay sober for long enough yeah. to gather clues. Um is like at one point one point he goes to a party, he immediately gets loaded. Yeah. Um He's barely, he goes around, he cannot keep enough of a straight, he, like, can't say a straight sentence enough no. to, 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 yeah, ask this question. He immediately starts hitting on women and chasing women around the party. You see a smash cut of him swimming with these mermaids in this pool. Yeah. <laughs> I had to go question them. It's so funny. I had and to go question trying... the sea people, I think is what he does. Yes. And then he, he tries, he tries to impress a, a girl by showing off his acting skills and he's yeah. like oh i can show how good i am at, at, at getting fake shot and he's pretty good at it uh but he throws himself off of a balcony yeah. to impress her which in a way that could kill him he's on, yeah, it's on the third story like yeah. he falls off and rolls down a pretty major hill pretty fast and then loses his gun and then he stumble fucks his way into finding this producer that they were kind of looking for um played by robert and- downey jr and then, oh, I didn't know that. And then he later tries to take credit for finding the producer. Well, then he accidentally, too, sees uh, Margaret Qualley run away from yes. the dead body. And he so doesn't he's... know who it is, though, because he's done, yeah. like, no no research on yeah. the case. Even. He's been on her for a while. And he doesn't yet... reckon, he's so drunk, and so he doesn't even quite, he's like, that girl looks familiar, as opposed to the person that he's he's literally there to try to find. Oh yeah, he doesn't report her to Russell Crowe. No. The audience just gets to recognize this moment. Right? Yeah. But he looks at her and does a double take, but doesn't quite, he's like, where do I place this person? Yeah. <laughs> That's the then... person he's trying to find. It's so funny. And then he's like, oh, I was just looking to her. He's like, oh, I was just looking for my gun. And then he's sitting next to a corpse and she's like, uh, and just runs away, which is what you should do. Um, like yeah. his, his fuckery in like a, a, a short sequence really like, a, a, and then the way that he like tries to defend himself later where he's like, I found Sid Shattuck. I yeah. found him. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, no, you rolled down a fucking hill. Like, Russell Crowe immediately is like, no, you rolled down a fucking hill. And yeah. you practically tripped over him. And then they, and then they two are like, them two together are like, let's get rid of this body. I don't want people yeah. to think we killed him. Oh, my God. Like, again, this is where it's just like, it's one thing after the other with, with that kind of, this is what you expect to happen. You think this is the scene where they just throw the body over and then they go back to the party. <laughs> Instead, they throw the body over and it lands on some, a fucking wedding reception table because that's not like there's a house there's a yard down there and they're having a backyard wedding it's la they're all the hills so they're actually descending towards another property yeah and they throw a dead body onto onto a wedding reception table that also that whole drunken scene ends in like again that just it's so good how he subverts these things they they go we'll talk we'll go back to the russell crow and we'll talk about this party more later but the end of that moment when he's because he's so wasted he finally has a heart to heart with russell crow where russell crow shares like this is why i'm famous this is what happened to me um and everything else and like that's the moment where our protagonists who have been at each other's throat for half the movie bond and ryan gosling is so drunk that he doesn't remember the conversation the next day when he's like when he's talking about well yeah i've killed someone remember like publicly i killed the person who was robbing the diner he's like i don't don't know what you're talking about he's like the story what we talked about last night where 
why people know me, why I've been thinking about being a PI. Sorry, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> like that is a, that is a great subversion of the two guys bond because one person's so fucking drunk he doesn't remember the conversation at all. Like it's great. It is. It is so great. I love. Uh, I love this. The sh- how Shane Black subverts like every way that you would build their friendship and the way that like Russell Crowe is like the bruiser, but he's yeah. also the only solid detective. Usually, there's like, um. The bull in a china shop that becomes necessary, and then there's the guy that does good detective work. Yeah. And even Lethal Weapon kind of has, like, they mix what their specialties are a little bit, right? Like, um, Murtaugh does great police work. He does, and he sits, and he, like, sits with clients, and he's good at, like, the the face-to-face stuff. And Riggs is, like, a little too... Risk-taker. Yeah. He's, he's too cocky, he's too fast-talking, he, like, doesn't quite, he doesn't quite click as, like, the, like... He doesn't know how to do the like shoe leather detective work. Yeah, and the, but those two together, it's great. With with this, it's like Holland is just like literally, literally. He they just Russell Crowe needs a second person. Jackson. Well, it's not. It's not even that. Person. It's just a ja- yeah. Jackson Healy, who's Russell Crowe's character, doesn't have a PI license. Yes, and and and, and, and Holland does. So he basically and Holland technically has the case and the reason to find this one. So it's like to keep them protected and that what they're doing like is legally, like legally yeah. sound. He just basically needs Holland, but he contributes almost nothing to the to the whole movie. But we'll we'll get everything there. that he contributes is an accident until the last fifteen minutes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so ja- so Russell Crowe plays ba- Jackson Healy. Oh, sorry, real quick, oh, so a couple more a couple more things that make me laugh so fucking hard. This movie is so funny. There's a point later on when Russell Crowe, all right, they have to negotiate with Kim Basinger, mm-hmm. and uh, he can see her clearly writing a check, and he's you can see we as an audience can see she's writing ten grand. And then he goes, I won't take a penny less than... And he doesn't even wait to see her initial offer. Yeah. $5,000. And she just quietly tears out the $10,000 check and writes a $5,000 check. The funniest part about that joke, though, like, again, in the way that... We're going to use this word too much. I guess drink every time we say subverting cliches. The typical cliche in that movie is... in, In that scene is Ryan Gosling's an idiot. And Russell Crowe goes, you fucking idiot. And instead, Russell Crowe, because they're both broke idiots, looks at him and like does like a shoulder shrug of like, "Oh yeah, five thousand. That's a good amount that you said." Seems but, like twenty five hundred bucks a piece is good. Yeah, like he's not mad. He doesn't. He he actually thinks like, "Ooh, that was pretty ballsy of you to throw out five thousand dollars." Like it's it's great that like Kim Basinger is like these guys are both sort of idiots, and that's coming back to Russell Crowe. So Russell Crowe plays Jackson Healy. He is just a guy right now trying to make a living. Um, and like at $20 at a time and demanding exact change from high school kids, uh, with beating up people and threatening them. He is, he is just that he's a heavy. Um, and the reason why people know who he is and he got famous for doing this is in the story that he eventually tells to Ryan Gosling that he's so drunk. He doesn't remember is that he was in a diner. Someone pulled out a shotgun to rob it and he not caring about himself beat the shit out of the guy and save the whole diner full of, full of people. So he was on um, like an LA like daily newspaper. He, you know, he was a little minor celebrity uh, for a little bit. And so since then he's been kind of taking that celebrity and using it to get money from people who want either people threatened or people beat up. And he doesn't have that much of scruples either. Like he, he is like, 
there, it's kind of a joke, but there's a scene later on where he's negotiating about how much money he'll take to beat up a high school girl who's being mean to to Holland's daughter, Holly. Yeah, yeah it's, he, he, her friend, she's like, how, how much can you pay? I pay you to beat up Janet. Yeah, yeah. And he's obviously, he's, he's fucking around, but he's like, he's like genuinely entertaining the offer because he thinks it's funny. <laughs> yeah, well, because he's like, he's making, he's making his money 20, 30 dollars at a time. And he notes about, like, maybe I should get my private eye license because then it's a little more acceptable for me to beat people up if I need to. But also, like, the first thing that he notes when he goes into Holland's house is, like, you afford, like, this is your house on a private eye license? Like, he is impressed by the money or the the living that he says. It's not like it's, like, a giant mansion. It's just better than the kind of squalor. It's, it's a really like, nice place, though. It's a it beautiful is, yeah. L.A., like, one-story you know, ranch house. It's, it's costs like gorgeous. $400 a month in 1977. I assume. <laughs> yeah. Now it costs $8 million a week. Um, yes. but like, yeah, so he, he, he does have a sense of scruples. Like he, he has, he has, he has put himself on it, but like, he's, he has his own like code of ethics and stuff like that, that he does. And like you said, he's, he's good at punching people and he's a, somewhat of a competent detective to put, two and two together like his dream of becoming a pi is is a is a somewhat of a good one but yeah he is he is limited by the fact that he's essentially taking illegal money to beat people up and threaten people he has no sense of security or kind of recognizes that this is a gig that could be up pretty soon but on the flip side like he he you know how he kind of gets into this case and why he beats up ryan gosling is that he gets paid he says there's a creep uh one of uh, Margaret Qualley specifically is like, hey, there's a creepy guy who's been following me around. Tell him to knock it off. And so he goes, and that creepy guy is Ryan Gosling, who has been who's been paid by um, uh, Margaret Qualley's aunt. Yeah, Margaret Qualley's aunt huh. is paying... Uh, paying Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Uh, to find uh, uh, Amelia, which is Margaret Qualley's character's name. Um... And and she she realized she's being followed. Uh, Amelia thinks it's by her mom, who's Kim Basinger. Um, but she pays Russell Crowe to tell this guy to stay off me. And that's where they meet. That's that scene. He goes to the house, beats the shit out of him, says, you need to get this lesson. Um, asks some questions like who is paying you and stuff like that. Because it ends up being that it's not who Amelia thinks is actually paying uh, Holland off on. But yeah, the scene where he's like, Who's paying you? And he just is like, this, her aunt. Oh, you just gave up your client like that? Yeah. Well, you told me that I'm not allowed to work with her anymore. So she's not my client anymore. You just told me that. So like, he he has no code of ethics. And there's an immediately a conflict of like, wow, you have kind of everything I want. You're terrible at this. You keep trying to pull a gun out that is very obvious, big movements. And I keep stopping you. You suck. And then he runs into Holly on the way out, who gives him Yeah, and like, yeah, it feels like Jackson, Jack, there's a moment where there's, the, that's part of the complexity there. It's like Jackson is like a more nurturing traditional father and it, like to Holly. And like, they have like a fun, they have a fun back and forth too. Um, he's also not an alcoholic. Uh, maybe yeah. he is, I don't know. Uh, well, at the well end, no, remember kind of he a- gives up, he gives up drinking. He's given up drinking and then he starts drinking again. Yeah, so it's hard to tell, like, kind of how to read that ending, I think, yeah. but... Um, 
But the point is that, like, he doesn't have... He's a better detective, but he doesn't have the license. He's actually a more, perhaps, responsible guardian, but he doesn't actually have a kid. Yeah. Uh, You know, he is a a calm, quiet listener, (laughs) but he... And he does good detective work, but he ends up just breaking kids' fingers, right? Like, yeah, it's sort of like the two people. It's not quite they they have each other's lives. I don't think it's it's, it's as cute as that. But it's that both of them are kind of ill suited for the existence they're in. But like together, they kind of fill in the gaps of what each other's existence needs. Yeah, and some of that is literally just like, I think Ryan Gosling is a zero and. Russell Crowe is a 0.5 and they like because that's kind of the equation of these buddy cop movies right you 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 called it right with Lethal Weapon this person is 50% this person is 50% together they add up to 100% and I, the joke here is that one person's basically 0% and one person's 50% and they add up to like Russell Crowe's skills yes <laughs> like you know that's that's where they add up uh, which is so goddamn uh, funny and good so when Healy, though, gets back to his apartment, you find out that there's that Ryan Gosling actually wasn't the main person who was following. Uh, that wasn't the person necessarily that um, Mark Qualley was scared of because there was this other guy who we, we end up calling Blueface uh, and then another another older uh, muscle played by Keith David, who's always great uh, to see and is very funny, who, who assaults Healy and is like, you're going to tell us everything you know about this girl. And he's like, I was just paid by some one of her high school friends, not realizing it was her, to beat up this other guy who was following. And he doesn't give up his clients. He's like, I'm going to find you guys and I'm going to fuck you up and and everything else. But one of the funny things that happens, for some reason, he has a he has an exploding bag, like the kind you have at a bank in his closet. Like, you oh, know? Uh, he, uh, he, uh, a friend of him was paying him to hold on to a hot bank job bag. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, but it's one of those bags that, you know, has one of those packs in. He doesn't have the word for it fast enough. And the guy's already fucking around with the bag and it explodes in his face. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's like, that's not going to come off. They make that paint so it doesn't come off. Uh, and later on, when we do see him again, he, uh, he, he's still blue in, blue in the face. Um, so then that gives Healy, though, a reason to go back and talk to Holland because he's like, okay, these guys are trying to now fuck with me because I told you to lay off her. So clearly I did not tell the right person to leave her alone. So we're going to work together to find her, find out why these guys are trying to get, you know, so that's kind of how they, they end up together. That essentially Healy in that kind of professional um, uh, the professional integrity he brings to the job realizes that he, when he beat the shit out of Ryan Gosling, that was the wrong person. That is not the creep that um he was paid to to keep away from from her. These other two guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 I feel like you know we kind of said we we jump around and and yeah, kind of follow the plot. That's just setting up how they got together. Yeah. And, yeah. The you know this takes us to the party that we were talking about. Yeah. This uh, where you know because she's a, involved in pornography. They find her friend because in the pollution group. Yes. And they're like, oh, she's actually works with this guy, whose house burned down because they shot some pornos together. Yes. And so it takes us to this this into this pornography circle, and you're like, what does this have to do with Detroit Auto? Yeah. And then, um, 
Basically, you think it's a missing girl who got involved with porno and then, you know, had to disappear because bad guys are after her. Yeah. Um, instead, it's actually kind of a it's More kind of a bigger, broader yeah. conspiracy yeah. about uh, Detroit um, trying to fuck up the um, the 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 regulation around catalytic converters. So yeah. uh, taking Real a quick thing. step back, yeah. one of the like it's we talk a lot about like. People always talk about like, oh, what's what's what good is it to make all these green changes? Like, you know, they never really do anything. The government never really does anything. Like, we have in the past hundred years made multiple positive effects on the environment just by passing basic regulation laws. Like, yeah. we fixed the ozone layer. Um, yeah. What's yeah. funny though, that's something that now that it's we fixed it, people go like right wing people go on and say like, first they were complaining about the ozone layer. Now they're complaining about global warming. It's like, yeah. That was a problem that was resolved through political action and environmental do, do you think they regulation. Made up acid rain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I do think they think that. Um, and then, like the smog thing is genuinely a problem, particularly yeah. in Southern California. Um, just the way the air currents work, like this pollution was not being carried away, and the air quality was terrible, it was causing terrible health effects. And then the state regulated what kind of cars could be driven legally in the state, yeah. who was allowed to get permits. Uh, you're supposed to get a smog check regularly in California. Yeah. It's in a lot of states have started adopting that. And like um, people make fun of, oh, you go to California, you got to you got to make sure your car is green or whatever. It's like, no, like the, because of these, we've actually fixed a serious problem Yeah. Um, to some extent. Not to say there's not any pollution here because uh, the amount of cars, but um salt lake city is now having this problem where they're having population influxes and the air can't go anywhere because the city the is mountains, largely yeah. by mountains so and but it's a right-wing bastion so like they're starting to get smog problems in utah yeah um and uh you know that that like regulation thing is going to be a hellish nightmare to get past yeah because um, they've said that it doesn't work for so long but it's like you know, it's it's the old joke. Like they 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 hire people that say governments. You know, they they the right wingers and those types of people, corporate interests like centrist stuff like that, say government doesn't work, and they get you know elected to break it so that they can prove that. Look, see what is this? What is this doing? So yeah, it's um yeah. So that is who's doing, and they the 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 person who the the Detroit like automakers, the person who. The Justice Department is saying uh, you don't need to do these regulations that are supposed to be passed is uh, is Amelia's mom, played by Kim Basinger. Her name is Judith Kutner, and she's the one who's kind of making like a shitty politician's deal, politician deal to basically say, you guys don't have to follow these reg- regulations. We're not going to prosecute you. And Amelia finds that out and is trying is convinced that her mom's trying to kill her, which ends up being true. Um, because she is trying to make a porno movie to get people's attention. That is an experimental a, film with a exper- message, Aaron. Experimental film with a message that is is uh, that is essentially telling everyone that this is what's happening, blabbing the secret. And we don't find this out to the end, but there's a there's a Detroit auto show in L.A. a huge where where they unveil their new models and stuff like that, and that's where they were going to switch the film. And they were going to show this this uh, experimental film about how uh, they're they're the Justice Department's in league with 
the automakers to uh, to circumvent the regulations. Yeah, yeah, and, and and so the last third is not about Margaret Qualley anymore. It's not about Amelia anymore. Now it's about getting this this uh, film back, and um, they're being hunted by this uh, hitman named John Boy. Which, in a very Shane Black twist, there's this massive shootout. They try and get Amelia. And after all of that, Amelia has run away from the, the safe place that's been yep. established and just gets shot on the street by John Boy. Because like, oh. he, he's like, he's like, holy shit, like I'm running away because I lost the shootout. She's just running towards me and gets gets killed. That is a very Shane Black, like, oh, the person just dies suddenly. I also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this into a slight serious tangent for a second, and I apologize. But like, I was thinking about that moment in the movie, and I do think like what Shane black and he does this in a lot of movies where like people die very suddenly or like ironically or like oh shit if you like it's so easy to monday morning quarterback their death and go man if you just would have stayed there like you did the worst possible thing and then you died suddenly and it's now it's all over like there's a lot of like serious scenes that are not meant to be funny in this movie of everyone just being like come on fuck like we had you you were safe after all that chase after all that stuff one little quick thing and, and you're gone when you're gone forever. And like, that is something that like is the, you know, obviously Kim Basinger is a shitty mom and she's the one that, that did it. But like that feeling is the feeling that you feel in, in real life all the time when you have kids, it's like, like that feeling of like, Oh no, like, you know, don't put something in your mouth. Don't go do something stupid. Like how don't go, you know, don't leave them alone in the bath for a minute because like, they could quickly drown and you'd run back in and then it would just be like, oh my God, that's it's it's too late. And so like, it, you could feel like, oh, it's an easy, lazy twist, but that kind of like sudden feeling is like a real, it's a real thing. Like it's not meant to be a joke or ironic. It is like a, you did the dumb thing because e- and everyone feels terrible about it. And I'll um, trigger warning for the next two minutes if like baby animal death freaks you out. Um, but like I had, like what this reminded me of, so about, Two months ago, I was walking and like taking a break from work and taking like a walk to keep, you know, act movement and stuff like that. And I, I live in a cul-de-sac. So it wasn't like a big walk. I was literally just like going around to the to, in the circle of the cul-de-sac, end of the street and back and like just basically doing laps. As I was doing that, it was like May. So I saw like a little baby turtle. Just a little baby turtle, right? Like cute. Like just he's just walking on the sidewalk and I kept lapping him, you know. And I was like, oh, was, you know, it just kind of becomes like this weird walking buddy. Every time I go past, I go past this little baby turtle. And I'm doing that. And then I, I like I didn't think anything of it, even though he was like right by the curb. And then like I do a lap. The postal truck comes. Postal truck goes, drives right by the curb. Right. Mm-hmm. And, at, you know, I, I just see it come and I pass and I go through the walk. And I as I walk by there again. There's the turtle who has been run over by the postal truck. And it was like a really like affecting moment for me where you start going, man, if only two minutes ago I would have thought that could have happened, I could have put that turtle on the grass and it would have been fine. And like, it's like you kind of like do this thing where like you want to rewind time just a tiny bit because it was such a clear thing that I, you know, you shouldn't have done or should have done it differently or something like that. And something could have been avoided. And like that, that reminded me so much of like this moment of like, man, she runs down that hill. If you just would have stayed in that closet, if you could rewind time two minutes, 
everything would have been fine. But that's how even like a baby turtle death, it can just happen so suddenly in one like tiny change that you could have made seconds before could have could have avoided the whole thing. And I I do think like Shane Black kind of gets that like that you can do a whole movie chasing, saving close calls and stuff like that. And then something stupid can happen and it's over. Like, that's it. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good point. Like, it's a really good analogy. It's like, it doesn't have to be some big dramatic uh, yeah. shootout. The The point is that, like, sometimes, like, absentmindedly in life, we, the, just the horrible thing can happen. Yeah. And uh, we're like, you can see it happening in slow motion, but, like, like it it doesn't affect. It seems like you didn't do something, but you're like, yeah. it's the turtle. Yeah. Turtle was going to turtle. Yeah, he's just walking around. He's fine. Like, yeah, but it's it, yeah. It it just it just kind of reminded me to that because that was like a little weird moment of like, oh man, these things can happen so quickly, and you can then think back to two minutes ago and like, oh, I could have prevented this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that that actually kind of um, that kind of speaks to why Shane Black is so affecting as a writer sometimes. Yeah. Is because he doesn't subvert things so that, like, the most ridiculous thing possible happens. Yes. He's, he subverts things very often to dispense with Hollywood bullshit. Yes. Something we talked a lot about with, like, all the clever little quirks in Lethal Weapon where it's, like, like all these little, these million little choices that are very silly and yet filmmakers make all the time. Yep. Or all the little moments in, like, Iron Man 3 where henchmen are like, I'm actually going to put my gun down. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to defeat an Iron Man yeah. currently with a yeah. handgun. Yeah. I'm going to go home if that's all right with you. Like, And then he's just like, all right, cool. Yeah. Iron Man's not the Punisher, so he's just like, all right, fine. Yeah. Um, and, uh, like, there's these little clever moments that he has in, in these uh, in these scripts that are actually wink at realism. It's just yep. that it's happening in these, like, madcap comedy contexts where... Uh, it doesn't feel like realism, but, like, your brain recognizes, like, like, oh, yeah, like, that's actually what would happen. And it makes you feel smart when you're watching a movie sometimes where you're like, yeah, geez, I mean, that's, yeah, that's going to happen sometimes. Sometimes you're not going to be able to, you know, save the girl. And sometimes, you know, if she's running away, she's going to be running down the same street as the bad guy. So and it, and it doesn't always happen in the finale, like you said. Like, it's not always a big moment. It's just as a small moment that she's she's kind of had close calls throughout the movie and all of a sudden like hey one of those close calls can can connect right in the movie but let's get back a little bit into the conspiracy so after the party when they kill the blue man and margaret qualley um they don't capture her just yet they get brought in by a cop um and who brings them to to uh kim basinger who uh introduces herself in a very funny scene she's like i'm jude's kid uh, Kutner, the the head of the Justice Department, and Ryan Gosling's like, okay, well that explains basically nothing. <laughs> <laughs> he always he has this dense, it just impatience and stubbornness about everything. Where like uh, Russell Crowe or uh, Jackson will be starting to tell him like a story, and he's like, here it's sort of like a metaphor yeah. for what's going on, and it's literally a fifteen second story. Yeah, and then. Oh my god, that, it, that part is that that where he's so like tells the story about Richard Nixon. He's like he's trying to just tell him of like maybe like because he's he's trying to help him connect the dots. Like maybe they're both telling the truth, they just have a different perspective. And he tells the story of this guy dying, and the actual Richard Nixon 
ended up running into him while he's trapped under the car and says something. So maybe this person's last thoughts were the last thing you see before you die is is Richard Nixon. And and so, like, he would be telling the truth if he told you that story. But, you know, and and Ryan Gosling, I think I actually wrote it down because it's so good. So wait, that whole story you're saying. So there's two ways to look at something. We'll just say that. You don't tell that whole story. Just say, hey, sometimes there's two ways to look at something. <laughs> you bore me with your story. <laughs> so, but like, that he's is such like... A de- he's such like a dense object. He's just like, a fucking human brick. He's just, well, he's, he's just like, yeah, I don't really know. Unless you tell me what to punch, I don't really know what you want me to do here. Well, and it's, it's, uh, it's so funny because like, they're, the Justice Department is bringing them in to talk about the case. Like, that's the part where you want to, like, make friends and listen to what's going on if you're a good private detective. And the first thing he says, okay, that explains basically nothing. <laughs> like, he's like, I have no patience for this. Like, I'm drunk, you know, because he is drunk. He just, this is the whole running down the hill, driving the car. This great, like, party where they keep uh, going over and over, as we talked about. Um, but yeah, it's... And also, if it's he wasn't a- drunk, he might have been able to take out the blue guy earlier, too. Like... <laughs> yeah. Um, so really quickly after that, they say, we're going to give you a hundred thousand dollars. So he's drunk and driving and he falls asleep and he has a dream of like a giant bee in the back and he has a dream of Russell Crowe. Like he doesn't realize the dream. It's like a hallucination. He's falling asleep while he's driving and think Russell Crowe's talking to him and showing him the gun he has on his ankle. And then in the middle of that, he mildly crashes the car the suitcase explodes and what instead of bills everywhere it's newspapers and they realize oh uh i guess the uh i guess margaret qualley was right and her mom is uh, a bad guy Uh, um but the funniest part about that in like again a scene in a movie with so many funny moments later on when they get jumped at the hotel by um tally by by tally and a gun pulled on him (laughs) Ryan Gosling jumps and lunges towards Russell Crowe's ankle to pull out his ankle gun. And Tally almost shoots him because he's obviously reaching for a gun. And then when he doesn't find it, he goes to the other leg, obviously, all while she has a gun on him. And he's and Russell Crowe's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going for your ankle gun. He's like, what ankle gun? You told me when we were driving last night. <laughs> and he's like, was this... When you fell asleep, did you have a dream about this? And Ryan Gosling's like, oh, it might have been. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, <laughs> to do that stupid dream thing where he shows him the ankle gun and then have Ryan Gosling jump to get it and then keep trying to find it like he, he's so fucking dumb he might have missed it on his ankles. All while ago. It's, it's so it's so good. It's so it's, funny. It's so funny. And the, the... Even how they end up taking out tally is very funny because like his daughter busts in very obviously like like daughter like or like like father like daughter ship off the old block she goes come in i know what you're doing you're obviously not serving food and she goes well what do you think about this and throws coffee she's like why would you throw cold coffee at me and she's like oh sorry i it must have been sitting out there for a while i assumed it was hot coffee and ryan gosling's like i like where your head's at Uh, (laughs) and then of course the way they end up getting out of it is that when she goes to walk she slips on all the coffee (laughs) and And knocks herself out knocks herself out and shoots the gun that almost uh hits hits ryan gosling and so there's this this funny thing that happens in here where ryan gosling has like a crush on tally yeah and so he's like he's like uh 
you're not a well. But first, Jackson's like, you're not a killer, and she's like, I killed three people in Detroit. And Ryan Gosling's, well, you're not a killer. And then Jackson's like, well, yeah, she is a killer. Like maybe one person is you know a mistake or whatever, something you regret. But when you get to three, I mean, whatever. and he's like, no, she's different. He's just like he's just like leaning in. On he's this still trying wants. to do the whole like you're better than this after that's been pushed pushed yeah, aside. And yeah, and he's just hitting on her like a sixteen year old. Like he's just yeah. like, "Man, your hair is so pretty. You look so pretty today." And then when she and then when she knocks herself out, he comes and puts a pillow under her. Head. <laughs> um, he's just convinced she has a good heart because he wants to sleep with her. So they they end up they find they they end up. Showing the porno film, the experimental art film, sorry, at the auto show while they're kind of running this chase. They have another – the funny the funny moment of the shootout where he's like, I must be invincible is because uh, it's a rotating car show. So Ryan Gosling takes cover behind a car, forgetting that it's turning in a circle. And he waits. To, he's, like, he's like talking himself up how he's going to stand up and shoot the bad guy. And by the time he's worked up enough courage, he is just facing the bad guy who starts shooting at him. It's so – it's such a funny – so funny. Like, I mean, like I know this is turning into the Chris Farley show. But like, again, all these little moments of like the – you know, it works so well with like what Shane Black's doing. Instead of the hero taking cover – and getting himself like ready to make the final push. Instead, he's a dumb idiot who forgot that he's on a rotating yeah. cover, and now he he doesn't get the chance to go be the hero. Instead, he he's getting shot at again. Yeah, and, and some quick like moments that I absolutely love, yeah. like comedy moments that we haven't talked about, just to kind of you know push us towards the end. The scene where they first are introduced to John, how much of a how good of a killer John Boy is, where they're like. <laughs> All right, we got to go up the elevator. You know, it's not the smart thing to do, but we got to be heroes. We got to save Amelia. And then they go up the elevator, like both of them just kind of going like, let's go. And then they immediately hear someone gurgling on their own blood. They see someone getting blown away. Someone gets thrown out the window. Thrown out the window, yeah. And John Boy is is, is in a a really good move off screen. Yeah. So it makes him feel like, you know, the guy from Hitman or something, like Agent 47. Like, he's just, like, such a force. Yeah, killing, like, four people. They immediately just step back in the elevator and are hammering the button, and then it smash cuts to them peeling out of the parking lot. Like we're not going in there. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, never mind. Uh, yeah, after the, and that's after the, the. See why this is like one on top of the other. That's after the whole scene that I talked about at the beginning, where Ryan Gosling like, no, you idiots, this isn't the airport. This is this old English flats, and you're reading it wrong, and I solved the mystery, and they find the flats, and they go there, and they're like, it burned down two years ago. And he's like, okay, the airport then? And then they get there. They're like, oh, it's the airport bar. So then they – or the – sorry, the airport bar and hotel. So they go there to psych themselves up to stop the bad guy only to immediately go, never mind. That that bad guy looks really tough. Um, And then, funnily enough, as they're about to pull out – like peeling away, like you said. Then there's the whole like Jackson Healy's like, we can't do this. She's gonna die. And Ryan Gosling's like, yeah, forget it. She's dead. You saw him. She's gone. <laughs> we need to forget about her. Like he, he immediately goes, it's just like forget it. She's dead now. And yeah, of course, he's, the, he's in shame stubborn. Action, he's a coward. He's yeah. just like, but it's funny just coming out of Ryan Gosling because you expect him to be like you know somewhat. Uh, even like you expect like, handsome handsome people to be trustworthy. Yeah. And it's just not happening for no, him. No. Um 
it's it's just so it's so good. Uh, I have also one a line later later in the movie where like, you know what? At least no one got hurt. And then and then Jackson's like, yeah, a lot of people got hurt. It died, and he's like, well, they didn't get like hurt. They died quickly. They did like you know it didn't hurt them. They died. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. like, <laughs> which I think is the movie in, in a nutshell, or Shane Black's sense of humor in a nutshell. Like, yeah, it's just stupid little things that people say, and he and, and like. There's always a smart ass quip about it, but sometimes like you just taking the taking the dumb thing that person says and just like eviscerating it um is is a uh, is perfect. There's a uh, one one other just fucking hilarious scene that again, one of the one of the other ways that um that Shane Black circumvents those kind of clichés is that a lot of times when you're walk, walking watching action movies Something is happening and you're thinking like, hey, isn't this true of the scene? Like you're thinking some unspoken truth that all the characters should be acknowledging and for some reason they're not. And that's like in a nutshell, probably the most clinical way to describe like what Mystery Science Theater 3000 is. Like they're pointing out the obvious of the scene that the movie itself hasn't bothered to point out um, as it as it rushes forward on a plot like that's that's plot holes, nitpicky, whatever else you want to call it. It's like, hey, why isn't everyone talking about the elephant in the room? That's so stupid. They're not doing this. There's a scene after Margaret Qualley dies where the aunt comes back and is like, you guys know I did see her. And that leads them to the house where they realize that they didn't see her. She saw the porno movie and another copy must exist that was reflected. So they're sitting there arguing about what to do and talking about, you know, this person just died. And their aunt is in the room and it goes on forever as they're like, we need to go here. No, we need to go here. And all of a sudden the aunt who you kind of forgotten is in the scene. But would again, would be a nitpicker's paradise. Like, shouldn't, or shouldn't she have known? This is the first time she was learning <laughs> that her her uh, niece died. Like, why shouldn't she? Why why they forget about that? Which would be a normal action movie thing. Like, we, we got the information from her. What does it matter? She's not an important character anymore, <laughs> but Shane Black knows all that stuff. And so after they've had this big, long argument referencing this person has died 15 times, she's remained in the house for the whole thing. And she's like, <laughs> wait a minute, my niece is dead. <laughs> and, and, and again, Ryan Gosling goes, yeah, what have you, what have we been talking about? Of course your fucking niece is dead. <laughs> Oh, like, and then they're like, the I mean, I'm sorry for your lot. Like, it's so funny. Her, also, she's the setup. She's also the setup for the joke in the movie that is the most just, like, vaudeville classic joke. You can tell this is a joke that, like, Shane Black has said before he ever thought yeah. about writing the script. Which is, um, she's she had Coke bottle glasses. Actual Coke bottle glasses. Yeah. If you painted a mustache on a Volkswagen, she would say, she'd say, man, that Omar Sharif can run fast. <laughs> Yeah, and then when you see her, she does have like the thickest glasses ever. But it's so, it's so. And that's like a, that's such like a vaudeville joke. Like yeah. it's so silly, and it's such like an yeah. obvious punchline. Okay, so we we so can't rush to the end. Oh, go ahead. We can't just like keep naming jokes in the movie. But I have about seven more jokes I need to name. I'm just kidding. I mean, um, the one of the best visual jokes I've ever seen is when he wrestles. Um, so he pretends to be drunk. Um, cause, and you kind of think he might be drunk because, I mean, he gets so drunk at that porno party so quickly. You're like, oh, wait, how, where did he even go off to get this? We're not wasted? judging him prejudiciously. Yeah, we're just 
We have yeah. seen him do this 20 minutes ago or 40 so, minutes ago. Do- so he he you find out he pretends to be that drunk, but even his daughter's like, "Dad, how could you get this drunk? We're gonna die. You're not gonna you're not gonna remember the last moments for of your life because you're you're so wasted." Keith David takes him up to the roof, and the 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 trick is that he pre- was pretending to be the drunk this time. He wasn't actually drunk, and so he takes Keith David and just pulls him off the roof with them, and they both are falling, and there's a pool below, and Ryan Gosling lands in the pool, and Keith David hits right next to the pool and just explodes. And it's, like, such an amazing visual look of, like, one person hitting the pool and just another person falling 30 stories and exploding. It is fantastic. And then, the, and then of course, when he's under the water, he sees Richard Nixon. He sees Nixon. Richard Nixon, and he swims away from him. Um... <laughs> Uh, it's also because, like, I can't actually think of a movie where they've done the, like, you know, f- like, the fall in the hotel pool is, or is, like, one of the most common action movie scenes and they just make it. I don't think I can remember seeing a movie where so- what happens when someone doesn't make it. And you know Shane Black was like, I would like to show what happens when you miss that. <laughs> just ex- explodes into red. <laughs> yeah, he gets pulped. Yeah. Um... I do like that there's a moment where Keith David gets his ass kicked earlier and he's like, I'm going back to Michigan. And yeah. then I, and then, and then well, he uh, says, you got to get out of town. And Russell Crowe is like, he, he doesn't want to just say that generally he asked specifically, where are you planning to go to? Yes. Keith David's like, yeah, I'm going back to Michigan. And, yeah. and Russell Crowe's like, you yeah, know, that's good. And I do like that he ends up coming back later because like, these are criminals who are involved in a massive conspiracy and they're, so much bigger than these two PIs that like, they're like, oh yeah, this guy got, this big bear of a man got a jump on me once. That won't happen again. Like, yeah. the, you know, I do like that they subvert that because it's like, you're going home? No, we have like an entire operation here. We yeah. hired Agent 47 to, to yeah. come in and defend this. So that leads us to the ending. They get the film back. They... You know, they send yeah. Kim Basinger to prison. Nothing changes. The Detroit yeah. uh, keeps pushing forward. Basically, the lesson is, like, you can't beat City Hall. We know the big business and government are going to continue to collude in this, this rather toxic yeah. way that uh, harms us. Um, it, you know, they might lose the catalytic converter thing, but they're going to find new ways to continue hurting us. Yeah. Um, and they they lost in the end. They didn't they didn't bring down City Hall, right? They didn't bring down uh, yeah. mass, massive corporations. And that's sort of the theme of these movies is like there's usually like some sort of hydra or octopus that you just can't you can't defeat the giant octopus. You at most you nick one of their tentacles, and these guys they're like, yeah. Well, that fucking sucks. Do you want to go to the bar? <laughs> like that, that is, yeah. it's it's essentially the same ending as Big Lebowski, right? Like, fuck it, let's go bowling. Like, yeah, yeah, that's a hundred percent what it is. And he gets his on Christmas Eve. Russell Crowe's drunk in a bar because he's failed, right? He didn't bring down the bad guys. He didn't save the girl. He literally didn't do anything. Uh, even though it feels victorious because they get the film at the end of the movie, um, it's meaningless because, like you said. Um, and Kim Basinger says specifically, like, you, you're not gonna, what is that gonna stop? It's actually really stupid that anyone thought it was gonna stop, stop anything. Um, and then, but, but, uh, but Ryan Gosling's like, but I had a really good time with Russell Crowe and he's very competent at a lot of things that I'm not competent at. So Holly kind of convinces him, I think, to, 
take out the ad and start the detective agency or whatever. But yeah, he's drunk at a bar on Christmas Eve. And he goes, look at the ad I got. And he basically is like, okay, yeah, I'll be I'll be a detective with you. He said, yeah. he said I look Filipino. <laughs> because he doesn't really look like Russell Crowe. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I one of the funniest jokes as I as I screenshot it to you, um, because we didn't get to do Shaggy Dog this month because you were adamant against it, um, is that they drive past the comedy store, and Tim Allen is um, is uh, is he's is like the marquee. He's like the marquee, which I'm sure is a reference to. I mean, the movie's about bad guys from Detroit, and uh, uh, I I don't know if she, maybe it's a nod to a friend, but I mean. Tim Allen in the 70s was definitely a bad guy in Detroit. Yeah, yeah. He sold out all of his friends. We talked I about the Santa Claus episode. I thought there was no way that was right. Do you know when Tim... Because this movie takes place in 77. I'm like, oh, it's just a joke. Do you know when Tim Allen started doing comedy? Uh, he feels like an 84 guy. It was earlier than that. 75. Weird. Like, he... In, I mean, Home Improvement started in 1994. So he did do, like... 19 years before his big break. So I mean, I'm he sure did he was comedy doing... starting in 19, uh, 1975 and yeah. probably stopped doing comedy around 1998. Yeah. Well, <laughs> now... When was the last time Tim Allen was funny? <laughs> uh, when I mean, when did Santa Claus 2 came out? That was 2002. Yeah. I'm also yeah, being... I'm... I'm being a dick. I, both of us actually really liked the Santa Claus TV show. Yeah, I mean he's he he's not writing it clearly, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna like catch up on Last Man Standing or that was canceled due to wokeness. It was canceled due to wokeness. The woke mob um, made it so that um, people got bored of watching Tim Allen go on screen and be like, "Man, money eels aren't aren't real men." Good for like me. for like uh, thirty years. twenty minutes a week for the rest of your life. I looked because I looked it up when I saw that that Tim Allen was was headlining. Do you know? Did we talk about when we did the Santa Clauses? Like how old he is? Uh, sixty-five. He's seventy-two. Jesus. Yeah, I didn't know he was like a few years older than my parents. I mean, he started doing comedy eight years before I was born, which I guess means he's been doing comedy for forty-eight years. Jesus. And so somewhere before that, he was he was ratting on his friends. <laughs> Eagle-eared listeners you know, will be able to put together uh, my co-host's birthday. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I love this movie. I'm so glad we did it. Again, the, th- this is not a like heavy theme episode. It is interesting, though, like A.O. Scott specifically was like, you said it in the seven, was, compla- was com- negatively comparing this, one of the few negative reviews of this movie, negatively comparing it to Inherent Vice and kind of saying... If you're going to set it in the 70s, like, you should, you know, you should try to make it some sort of, like, thematic reason for it as opposed, like, and he cited Inherent Vice as, like, that's a movie about the 70s and the nostalgia and the fake nostalgia and, like, you just wanted people to wear clothes and not have access to cell phones, which, again, I, I think is a lazy complaint, but it's interesting that, like, there were a lot of people that saw this movie and were like, um... We're like, I would have rather had another inherent vice than than this movie. Yeah, no, this is this movie is absolutely hilarious. Uh, the 
my I have one complaint about it is related to it. Um, yeah, a lot of the aesthetic choices are really obvious. Like it, yeah. it, it feels like someone remembering the seventies, like through I love the seventies, as opposed to like this movie was made by old guys. Like they were there. Yeah. Um, like a lot of the aesthetic touches and even the title card are like a little like like um, it feels like a no, boogie night parody lazy. or something. I do think um, but, it's it's because I always think at this point when a movie set in the seventies or eighties it's just so they don't have cell phones. Yeah, which is fine. It, yeah, it's fine. Uh, I like when horror movies are set in the seventies because it yeah. kind of like inherently boxes people in more. People yeah. will have to discuss things in person and shit. The uh, yeah, the aesthetic thing uh, is obviously like yeah. I don't I don't think it's the strongest part of the movie. I think Inherent Vice like actually like nails. Not just, like, what photography of the 70 looks like, but also, like, it leans into, like, the cuts, like, these, like, particular style of jeans and the weird shapes of shirts that have, like, yeah. baseball sleeve lengths, but also, like, really weird wide open collars. Like, yeah, it's not all, like, disco. And the soundtrack in the movie has some good, good nuggets, but, like, the it's very soundtrack. The Inherent Vice soundtrack is so superior as, like... I mean, this is, like... I, I love September by Earth, Wind, and Fire, too, but, like... I, I know that's associated with the 70s. It's, like, 2016. I think, ideally, what I want to I hear when I watch a 70s movie is, actually, I want to hear you put songs that either I've never heard and are, and are really rad, or I want you to put songs that I think are a little lame and put them in a new context that makes them cool. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the uh, that's the platonic ideal is one of those two states. I'm not saying you can't drop a popular needle drop anymore. I'm just saying if you want me to be really impressed by a needle drop, it's either going to be something I've never really heard before or something I've heard before, but like put it in a new context. Playing September at a 70s disco party is like, like I think yeah. uh, a, a CBS sitcom would make the same choice, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um. You know, that's that's a little... It's not a huge complaint for me. That doesn't sink the movie. Um, I actually like a lot of the suits and stuff that Ryan yeah. Gosling wears. Um, I'm fine with it not being a reflection of the nostalgia of the time and just noting, like, hey, uh, the world seemed a little bit more mysterious and seedier at the time. Yes. Yes. And um, the, the one real complaint I have with the movie, the only thing that really holds it back, is it has this weird late-in-the-game pacifist streak where all of a sudden, like... Jackson is like doesn't want to kill a guy in front of oh yeah Holly. That's... and Holly's well, like I won't I will never talk to you again if you kill that guy and I'm like does is Holly a pacifist are they connecting her with like the hippie movement like what well, are they doing there for such a complex character it's kind of like kind of weird to have her care and also I feel like a young person would be like kill him I have no context of morality <laughs> yeah I um. I, I mean, it's obviously a callback to when Blueface got into the car accident and she's like, you're going to call the cops, right? And he strangles her and she's suspicious of, of that happening. I think the actual Shane Blackson version is like, okay, I won't. And she walks out of the frame and he, you know, kills kills him anyways. Because, like, why would you leave this, like, killer assassin? Vicious psychopath. Free. I I agree that is a weird, like, I don't know. That, that, that feels at odds with the rest of the movie, I it feels like having a kid be bloodthirsty and then have uh, Jackson be like, actually, this guy can go to jail. Like, it feels like that would be the better subversion yeah. there. But instead having the kid be like, if you uh, do this, I'm never talking to you again. Yeah. The kid being like, you need to uh, you need to believe in the justice system. <laughs> uh, 
Very yeah, yeah. Especially because the the literally director of the Justice Department is is in on this. It's uh yeah, agreed. That's a weird choice. Um, that's the only knock I have on the movie is this weird pacifist streak in the end. I know they were looking for like more ways to make sure that Jackson and Holly are like bonded heavily in a weird yeah. way. Jackson and Holly have a more like I said a healthier relationship than um you know Holland and Holly do um. But I think it's actually like, you know, the movie comes together really nicely. And in a weird twist, <laughs> uh, Holland at the end is like, uh, everyone will be driving, you know, Japanese electric cars in five years. And he wasn't right. But it's the weird ending where it's sort of like wild sci-fi bullshit that Holland says, like, now a lot of people do drive electric cars. And it's not all Teslas. Our friend drives an Ionic by kia i think it is and it's like a reasonably priced car that they plug in in their driveway like it is kind of a it is kind of a a, a cute moment where you're like this guy has been wrong the entire movie but like he's kind of on to something here <laughs> yeah well yeah i mean that is the joke right like that detroit does fall like they do sell out the city and because that's that's kim basinger's line near the end right you can't go against detroit detroit's never gonna fall those automakers are gonna you know that's that's the the joke of like foresight and knowledge that like um they're uh siding with capitalists it's you know siding with the wolf to not eat you is stupid and mm-hmm. they're gonna they're gonna turn on you that's yeah point. exactly yeah exactly uh yeah we got one more already peter uh a movie i've not seen by i think you said i the director was mark david chapman <laughs> in the previous episode i don't know if that's right we'll look it up before we do the actual episode I know he's I know he's known for something. Um <laughs> for yep, sure. Uh, Mark David Chapman. Uh no, it's John Wayne Gacy. Um David Robert Mitchell. Uh yeah, who did It Follows. Somehow, I was actually thinking about this today. I was like, how have we not done It Follows on this show? It does fall into that weird bucket of movies that that we watch while we were doing this show, so it felt weird. Like, well, we did it. We talked about it in our best of from, I think that's the 2016 movie, too. I think talked about yeah. the same time we talked about Nice Guys. But, like, at some point, we should probably come back and talk about It Follows because that, I don't know if you know this, yeah. Peter, great movie. We started this show with a mission to try and either, like, give movies that have a bad rap recognition or talk about movies that we, like, um, we think have not been properly recognized in general. And we haven't always done that, but, like, I feel like it's only in the past, like, year or two that we've been, like, we can do a big popular movie. That's fine. Well, I mean, I think... uh, Even when we did Iron Man 3, I was like, is this okay? Are we allowed to do this? Now we're doing Fight Club. Yeah. Yeah, this this summer, real sellouts. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so, but we're doing Under the Silver Lake with, uh, again, we talked about this last week. I don't know if you remember... People, someone who is well above our station in life from an art critic perspective, Ethan Warren, uh, many time guest on the show, uh, one of our favorite uh, favorite good boys, uh, coming to talk about Under Silver Lake. I believe a movie that he loves, Peter. Which is why yeah, he's he, gonna, he, he you, does. you were you were pretty sure that he was going to want to do Under the Silver Lake. Yeah, um, when him and I right. talked about what I wanted to cover in this month loosely, he yeah. was like, "Absolutely, mark me for Under the Silver Lake." And, and yeah. Uh, at yeah, the time, and he, he did he, not know he that he really loved... could not come on Inherent Vice. Yeah, for his he's, own he's also he's also such a busy guy. He abbreviated under the silver lake. He was like, "Yeah, I'll come on for UTSL." SL. So he's like, "That's how busy he is." So hopefully, he stays for the whole episode. Uh, but he'll be on next week as we wrap up uh, the Dog Days of Summer. Um, stay, stay cool. 
Stay frosty. It's a hot one. It's a hot one. to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>